I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. At this time, deep in January, when everything feels a bit bleak, the winter walk at RHS Garden Wisley has never looked better. Start off as you go in through the entrance, there's lovely daffodils in flower at the moment called Rheinveld's Early Sensation. This daffodil is a proper trumpet daffodil and always flowers early. After that, you follow the path round and you come to the coloured stems. A forest of stems, each about two metres high, and in reds and oranges and some greens and some blacks and also silvers. And these are from plants like cornus, which is dogwood, willows, that's salix, and also a kind of rubus, a kind of bramble that's got the most amazing silvery foliage. Then after that, we come to the witch hazels. The witch hazels have got fine feathery flowers. The ones we've chosen for the winter walk are mostly oranges and yellows, so they're really warm and glow and glisten. Going on a bit further, you come to the hellebores. The hellebores only come up to your ankle. They're quite low-growing plants with the darkest green leaves. You have to really get up close to appreciate them. But nowadays, breeders are breeding hellebores so the flowers are more upright, so you can appreciate them without having to get down on your hands and knees. And the hellebores are also more weather-resistant, so even in the harsh weather we've had this year, they're looking really good. It's things like this that bring me simple joy through the dark months of winter. And so today, we want to do exactly that. We'll be bringing to life some of the most eye-catching parts of deep winter gardening, all whilst providing advice on what you can get out and do in your garden as January draws to a close. First up, Dawn Smith from Warburton Nursery takes us deeper into hellebore territory, sharing her love for these winter interest perennials. It perks up everybody's feelings. It's a promise of what things are to come. We'll then venture to Wisley to hear all about the ornamental structures you can create in your own garden to support critters and crawlers. It's not just us that should enjoy it ornamentally, but we should also be serving the purpose and habitat of all those other things that use the land around us. Plus, we're bringing back a fan favorite segment. RHS advisors will respond to the most pressing questions and concerns they've been getting this month. Oh, we're getting quite a lot of mushy dead stuff that's come around because of the cold weather that we had before Christmas time. There's just a lot of grumpy looking plants around. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. While Dawn Smith has been growing and caring for hellebores at Warburton Nursery for over three decades, her love for the plant spans a lifetime. And no wonder. 
What else gives us that ray of light through the dark days of late winter? The cup-shaped flowers are breathtaking, magical almost. But you don't need me to wax poetic about it, so instead here's Dawn to discuss her favourite varieties and share her advice on how to keep your hellebores happy and healthy during even the coldest and wettest of months. When I was a child, at the bottom of the garden, there was a big wood and there was hellebores, celandines, bluebells, all in the woods. And we used to walk through there and get our kindling wood for the fire. And we was always looking to see what was out first. It was a test my mother used to give us so that we was more occupied with the plants and our surroundings. Hellebores, they was the first ones that come out for us. They used to have a, a little bit of speckling on the face, but most of them were white, fairly small, and they was just poking up through the leaf litter. It was the sign that the spring was just around the corner and all the new calves, lambs, birds, and the garden would spring to life. A hellebore is commonly known, well, it used to be commonly known as a Lenten rose, which is a Christmas rose, and it comes out in the winter, and it perks up everybody's feelings. It's a promise of what things are to come. They are five petals on the flower, and they come in lots of different sizes and colours. They can go from white through to pink, through yellow, to purple, to nearly black. So there's a wide range of colours to actually choose from. A lot of them aren't showy or in-your-face plants. They're more subtle. They're saying, come and look at me and I will show you my beauty, but you've got to come and see me. You can't just stand back and say, oh yeah, that's nice. Now I'll walk you through some of my hellebore favorite varieties. I'll start with Potter's Wheel. Now that's a Potter's Wheel strain, which is one of my favorites. It's one that's grown by seed and you get variations in it from white, through to white with a green streak, white with a pink streak. There's some that are quite dark, which are really deep purple, nearly black, which in the right setting is very striking. I think the hellebore lividus are often overlooked because they're not so showy, some of them, as the orientalis ones. They're more of a background hellebore, whereas the orientalis are more flowery and showy. They've got sort of a greyish-blue leaf with serrated edges to them, so they sort of blend into the background a little bit, which I think is a pity, because they have some really long flowering times to them. I like to mix-match, because then you get a tapestry so it's not all the same. And if you get seeding varieties, you leave the seeds on and they will actually pop up all over the place and you never know what you're going to get. I look after a memorial garden and I've actually got them by the side of the benches. 
so that people can have their lunch there and look at the flowers at the same time. And I've had quite a few people say, what variety is that? Where can I get it? Because they haven't thought about helibulls before, but once they do see them, they get enthused with them because of the time of the year they actually do flower. I've got Ivory Prince and I've got Rosemary there and I've got a Hellebore Viv Victoria there, which is a new one. Well, the Ivory Prince is a lividus one, which is a small one with serrated leaves and whitish flowers, sort of an ivory colour. Rosemary is a big pink flower with glossy green leaves and Viv Victoria is sort of a maroon colour which is a fairly big flower which is a nice contrast. Let's get into how to grow them. They like to be in shade or semi-shade. They like well-drained but fertile soil. They don't like to be planted too deep and they don't like their crown covered because they like the air to go through so that the buds and the leaves can come up easily and don't get damaged. If they get frost, they just flatten out. But as soon as they get sun on them, they perk up again. It's a defence mechanism. It's so that they don't snap because they are quite fleshy. The only thing they do not like is their feet in water. They do not like being flooded. If you've got a shady place, you can have whatever you want. But if you've got a sunny place, I would actually go for the newer varieties. They're more sun tolerant. They're actually being sold now in flower for people to plant as we speak. So it is an actual good time to plant them. If you plant it now, if it's in bud, it can flower between 6 to 12 weeks, depending on the variety, and also it will produce new leaves at the same time. And then when you get to the, the spring, you've got all the bulbs to come up to take over so that they can have a rest through the summer and rejuvenate and get ready for the next, next winter. I must admit, I do like the white ones. They are still my favourite. It's something to do with my family, because my grandmother, she had a little patch in her garden, which was just hellebores, and it was always white. She said they've lifted her spirit in the winter, when it can be gloomy, when it's all dark and dismal. You go out in the garden, and you see this little white flower perking its head up waving at you as much as say come and look at me well she could grow anything and i used to go and sit and watch her grow these things and i think that's where i got my love of growing thanks dawn if you'd like to learn more about hellebores and how you can grow them in your own garden check out the link in our show notes Hellebores truly are a winter wonder, but of course they aren't our only option for flowering plants at this time of year. And I look forward to snowdrops now. I've got the great drift of them in my garden. Winter aconites that won't grow for me, but I see that there's some lovely clumps spreading at Wisley. And dwarf irises. Dwarf irises tend not to persist in my garden, or indeed at Wisley, but the bulbs are inexpensive. 
and it's really fun to pot up some of the bulbs in the autumn, keep them in a sheltered space over the winter, and then in late winter and early spring, you can enjoy the most delicate little iris blooms. But it's not just an exciting season for winter interest flora. Much of our wildlife is on the move, and of course easy to see once the leaves are off the plants. Robins, starlings and crows create a great soundscape for our frosty gardens. Scurrying mice, squirrels and badgers give themselves away with footprints stamped in the mud. And I know I'm not the only one who's been kept awake recently by the soul-chilling screams of mating foxes. And as it turns out, it's pretty simple to provide habitats that attract this local fauna to our gardens. So let's head to Wisley to learn about the functional and elegant wildlife structures that horticulturist Mark Tucson has made his mission. So Mark, where are we and what are we looking at here? So we've just arrived in Car Park 2, out the front of Wisley, and we've got a joyous little robin waiting right in front of us in this beautiful meadow here. We've got the bike racks in front of us, there's the plant pot exchange where people can pick up and transfer their plant pots for their gardens at home. But what we really want to look at is this meadow here and our habitat towers. This is a collection of meadow waste and brambles that we thought, rather than just composting, we've created these kind of teepee-like structures. So they're quite ornamental and we've stacked in different layers of brambles, dried meadow cuttings, logs, and we've made this real lasagna of different materials in here to make up this extra bit of habitat in the car park here. So these wigwam structures are made out of coppiced hazel that we had here in the garden. We literally got them from not even 10 metres away. They're long straight poles, maybe about seven foot tall. We've got about seven of them in a circle and then they're all tied together at the top. And that just forms this nice structure and isn't going to topple over. What kind of critters are you expecting to turn up here? So even last year, we had lots of butterflies that were interested in here. We found robins that have been scrambling in amongst them. So we're recreating habitat where I guess is ornamentally favoured. And these towers, they'll eventually rot. Are you going to leave them to disappear into the soil and start a new one? Or are you going to keep mending and repairing these and building them up over the years? Well, I kind of think the excitement is by allowing this to break down, we're creating this compost or this nutrient-rich bit of soil. So as you can see, we've planted a wild rose here. So we hope that this will just kind of ramble up and over it. And in time, that the ground will be more fertile. And then we'll probably just start a new one elsewhere. We hope we can have this cycle of nutrients kept within the area. So really, you're mimicking traditional woodland management. Exactly that, yeah. Kind of an imitation of haystacks that you may see as well, yeah. We're here at Wisley and it's quite a wide open space here. Uh, most people have quite a small plot and it wouldn't be practical perhaps to have seven foot teepees, but in a smaller plot, could you make something that was to scale with those smaller areas? Yeah, definitely. You know, it could just be foot wide and it really doesn't have to be of any great scale. I think it's more the doing that's important. It's the allowing materials to break down in that location and that feeds the soil, stores carbon, and also supports wildlife. And what are the other things that you make to support wildlife that people could do at home? So we've been doing a bit of coppicing, just of like 
anything from bits of shrub that you might have that you're cutting out and rather than putting it through your shredder or putting it in your brown bin to put to the compost we've been making dead hedges so a very simple process of just laying down all the material kind of all in the same direction and again this just creates these like habitat corridors that lead from one area to the next a safe place for critters to run through and behind us there's a pile of logs what are you doing with those that's right so again all the material that we use we hope that it can serve a purpose to something so this has a lot more bigger gaps in it so we've seen little runs that run into it and we're kind of expecting hedgehogs and mice to be living in amongst them I mean, you've obviously put a lot of work into this, Mark, and a lot of thought. How does, how does this tie in with the ethos of you and your colleagues here? The team and I are really passionate about pollinators and habitats, so we really try and think about the materials we're using, and rather than just putting everything in the compost, we think, oh, where, where can this timber be used? Or can we make a nice wood stack? Or will this serve as habitat for our birds and wildlife throughout the garden? As horticulturalists or people interested in plants, it's not just us that should enjoy it ornamentally, but we should also be serving the purpose and habitat of all those other things that use the land around us. I think it's worth mentioning that in the olden days, not that long ago, landscape contractors and landscape managers would insist on this area that was mown three times a year, and it becomes what's called a green desert that doesn't support wildlife. But you've taken it a step further here, haven't you? That's right, certainly. And even as you look in here, it is wild, it is tufty, and we can see patches of clover that are starting to come through here. There's bird's foot trefoil that we've seen through the summer, and even bits of gorse starting to come through too. So yeah, it really is a treasure trove of wildlife habitat. So if you have a shady area in your garden, perhaps under a tree or against a fence where you can't do anything else, this is just the perfect solution for getting rid of a load of rubbish and helping wildlife. If you're clever like Mark, you can make it look good too. Thanks, Mark. If you'd like to visit Wisley to see the Habitat Towers or Dead Hedges in person, you can plan a visit using a link in our show notes. I like to use any spaces available in my garden to try and attract wildlife. I've got log piles, I've got stick piles, I've got water for the birds to sip. But I'm a bit aggrieved. My next door neighbour has hedgehogs, but his hedgehogs won't come into my garden, despite making lots of little gaps in the fence so they can come through and enjoy all the things that I've put there for wildlife. But it's not all loss. My local robin nests every year in a little shelf nest box that I've made and stuck to the side of my garden shed. And now for our final story of the day, we're responding to your questions. RHS advisors Jenny Bowden, Becky Mealy and Caroline Massey can take it away. I'm Jenny Bowden and I'm one of the gardening advisors based here at RHS Garden Wisley. I've got two colleagues with me today, Becky Mealy and Caroline Mazzi, and we're just going to have a little chat about some of the questions that we've been getting recently. It seems like a quiet time of year. Our weather's not fantastic, but we're still getting quite a few questions. So, Becky, do you want to start us off? What have you had recently? Oh, we're getting quite a lot of mushy dead stuff that's come around because of the cold weather that we had before Christmas time. There's a lot of grumpy looking plants around. 
So are these plants actually dead or is there something that people can do about it just to see whether they're going to come back? It's a bit hit and miss at this time of year. It's sometimes quite difficult to tell. Some of the things I would say, yeah, you know, give it a chance. There was a really nice mimosa tree that you could tell the main stem was okay, the bigger branches were okay, and it would sprout again in the spring. But there's been quite a few sad-looking hebes that I would just not even bother to try and give them a chance because... They're just going to come back straggly. I always think you should give them a chance. So what time is your cut-off point? In the spring. In the because spring. Because if they rally then, you know it's OK. If they're horrible, then that's a good time to buy and plant. But and not prune them, though. Yep. Leave all that damaged stuff there because it's a bit of an insulation blanket, a bit of comfort for them. Definitely. Have you had any pruning questions coming in? Quite a few. I think it's this time that people would naturally think of doing from their fruit pruning. I've had masses of apple Caroline's had loads of masses of apple pruning. <laughs> we all log the pruning questions to Caroline because she likes her apple pruning questions. Are there any general rules that you can give for apple pruning? I think the thing people need to decide first of all is what their priority is, whether they want fruit, or whether they want it to be a pretty garden tree. Because actually, the pruning of them will be quite different if you want it as just a garden tree as opposed to wanting to maximise your harvest. So having decided that, then the next thing to figure out is whether you can tell the difference between the flower buds, which are going to become the apples, and the leaf buds. And then once you can tell the difference between those buds, you can just chop off the bits according to the shape that you need. So the flower buds are fat, they're round, they might be a little bit furry, and the leaf buds are much smaller, slimmer, flatter to the stem. And at the end of the day, the worst thing that's going to happen really is that you don't get quite as much fruit as you might have wished. That's a really good way of putting it. And if you can't tell the difference between the leafy buds and the flowery buds, wait, because as it gets ever closer to when the flowers would come out, say like the end of February or the beginning of March, the difference between them becomes much more obvious compared to say, if you tried to do the work in November, you might struggle to tell the difference. So if you can't tell the difference, just wait, because there's no hurry. The apple trees, Pear trees can't tell the difference between November and February because they're dormant. So other questions that we've been getting have been on rose pruning. People are keen to get started on that now and we would say to them, perhaps just wait till the coldest weather is over. The, the wood on roses can be quite pithy. So if you prune now, when it's really, really, really cold, you can get a little bit of further dieback which you'll then have to cut out again a little bit later. So we tend to leave the pruning at Wisley until well into February, don't we, Becky? But it also depends on where you are, because sometimes they are starting to sprout and it's always easiest to do it before they've actually gone into growth because otherwise you're taking off the tips of the, you know, the new shoots. But yeah, and you don't want to be doing rose pruning on a cold day if you don't have to. Pick a nice day for rose pruning, I think. Yeah, it's true. And it's true of many garden jobs, really. People get quite worried about the timing of gardening mm. jobs. And 
sometimes it is a case of there being quite a big window for it and it's like have you got the time to do it now if you have go and do it and I think mulching is one of those really there's this idea that you shouldn't mulch on cold ground for example do it as the soil's warming up but you know what quite honestly there's an awful lot to do when the soil is warming up and if you have time during the winter when it's colder the ground and the plants they're really not going to be set back by enough to worry about when it comes to mulching. But it's always nice to finish off the job after rose pruning, isn't it? With like, so you're tidying it up, making sure your footprints aren't in there and you put a nice fluffy mulch on and you get rid of all the black spot. And yeah, that finishes the job off to a T. I've had some questions on houseplants that are already suffering, like gift houseplants. So citrus is one of those, and they don't always make the greatest house plants. They prefer conservatories or something where the temperature can drop a bit but not be too cold. So at this time of year, if they're overwatered or the temperatures fluctuate too much, they tend to lose leaves or go a bit yellow. So the key with those is to only water when they're dry at about an inch depth, two and a half centimetres, and then water well and then leave them alone again. So that can actually help stop them dropping any more leaves. And also the fact that people very often put their pot that's got drainage, the ones with the holes in the bottom, and they put them into an outer, which is waterproof, the decorative ones, you know, the nice ones. And they obviously know that the water will get out the bottom, but then it fills up the outer pot so that it's essentially sitting in a puddle, its own lake and it gets quite smelly. Yeah, I think the unfortunate is that sometimes that an overwatered plant can look very similar to an underwater plant with you've got the yellowing, That's don't right. you? I like to have a little bit of gravel in the bottom of my pretty pots, so then they're a little bit above that kind of water layer. Alternatively, you could put them on a saucer mm, because yes. then you actually can see the water's coming I know, out but bottom. I flood my windowsills. <laughs> I literally have, I'll be like watering, watering, and then all of a sudden, yeah, I'm always having to go around with a cloth after myself. There's one more inquiry that I have had. Bulbs that people have forgotten to plant. <laughs> Oops. So they discover somewhere in the house or the garage packets of tulip bulbs and they would like to know whether they're going to do anything or whether you hold on to them till September. And the answer is just pop them in the ground. And you know what? You'd be surprised how they catch up with themselves. So if you do find them and they're firm and they haven't got any visible mould on them, anything like that, just pop them in the ground, twice the depth of the bulb, even deeper for tulips, actually. They can usually go up to about six inches down, makes the stems a lot more sturdy. Pop them in and you'll probably find that they'll be flowering this spring. They're certainly not going to survive if they don't go in the ground. Yeah. So. Yeah, they'll, they just dry out and whiz and, and then mm. it's just an absolute shame. So sometimes it's a good idea to even just have them in a pot if you've got a spare pot and you can keep an eye on them and then maybe put them into the ideal place that you want them in the garden. But yeah, those bulbs do get forgotten, don't they? So plenty of reasons to go outside. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Becky, and thank you very much, Caroline. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> Thanks there to Jenny, Becky and Caroline. The RHS advisors are here to answer any and all queries our members may have. So don't hesitate to reach out if anything in your garden runs amok. You can reach us at rhs.org.uk backslash myadvice. 
Well, that's about it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening, and hopefully it'll mean we'll see more multicoloured hellebores up and down the country come next winter. This week, if you're looking for any additional jobs, it's time to order seeds and bulbs, get ready to start sowing, buy potting compost, clean greenhouses, mend fences, and renovate deciduous hedges by pruning them back and generally pruning stuff all round. Soft fruit, for example. Autumn flowering raspberries can be cut to the ground at this season. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.